Okay. Okay. So on three, everyone just say which text you prepped for this episode. Okay. Three. Hosea. 12. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this will be interesting. Yes. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that goes great with coffee out of a first reading coffee mug. Oh, good. (laughs) Merch placement. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University, an ordained Lutheran pastor. And I'm Rosie Candleball, a recent uh, postdoctoral fellow at uh, Columbia Theological Seminary from Louisville Institute, but Woo! still also connected to Emory, candidate for a PhD in Hebrew Bible. Yes, all things amazing you are. That's right. Yes, yes. Longer titles. So our co-host, Paul Essa, is traveling this week. But never fear, we are here to bring you preaching tips and tricks for June 11th, 2023. Although, as you heard from the intro, we have got a couple of options to choose from for the first reading this Sunday. That's right. We're back in that stretch in the RCL where different denominations, uh, you know, take different routes about which first reading is the, you know, like main in the plane and which is the alternate first reading, mm-hmm. uh, the one paired with the gospel or the semi-continuous first reading. Yeah, that's right. So just a heads up, if you come here regularly for preaching tips and you're in a church that uses bulletins, and your church pre-buys bulletin inserts, you might just want to double check and see if the texts that we discuss on here are the same ones that's in those inserts. For our part, this summer, we're going to be following the semi-continuous reading, uh, which in some cases is known as the alternate, in some cases is known as the main. (laughs) Just find the one that says semi-continuous, and that's the one we're going to be rolling with. Yeah, and for a while, it'll be in Genesis, so that'll be a little easier. That's right. (laughs) Today, we've got uh, insights into a couple of different texts since this is the very first episode of the summer. So let's start with Genesis 12. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Genesis 12 verses one through nine. Which is kind of cool because um, we've we've actually had verses one through four a uh, recently yeah. as mm-hmm. as recent as Lent. Well, and it's funny because I did the one on Genesis one through four a for March just two months ago. It was literally two months ago, March twenty third. And so when I saw it was up again, it was like, wait a second, I feel like <laughs> I've seen this one before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can give some love to uh, verses four b through nine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> in this in this time around, although I, I have a couple things to say about the first verses as well. Yeah. No. Go start there. Yeah, uh, a couple a couple things come to mind. One is um, this uh, this passage is often called the Lech Lecha, <laughs> uh, which comes from the the Hebrew for the command that God gives to Abram. Mm-hmm. Lech Lecha, go. I don't know why, but I just thought that was uh, it. Just hit me odd this time around. <laughs> Wondering about that kind of strange way of presenting uh, an imperative, uh, a Hebrew mm. command with not just the command itself, but the lecha afterward. Mm. So mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. yourself out of here. Mm-hmm. Go you. Hey, you go. I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. So I, I went on a little uh, accordance rabbit trail yeah. and found that uh, this, this occurs 12 times in oh. the Hebrew Bible. This formulation of, of the verb halach as a as a command, followed by, you know, you, y'all, whatever. And um, it almost always has the sense, not just of uh, command to go somewhere, 
but to go with a, a context of leaving something behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that's So when you were asking what to do, because I've always kind of, it's such an interesting construction and it almost, you could almost translate it, go from yourself. But it is just a fascinating thing then that in all of those contexts, it sounds like there's this sense of going and leaving something behind. Yeah. The way that I sort of made sense of the grammar there was to think of, this is like go and with an emphasis on you, you go mm-hmm. uh, in parentheses and mm-hmm. everyone else stays <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or yeah. the place that you, that, that you're leaving from is still, you know, back there mm. as for you, you go. And, and so you have um, kind of like, uh, there's some stakes embedded in this command because it's not just a go, but it's a depart, you know, yeah. depart from somewhere, leave some, something, someone yeah. behind. And in this case, mm. it's, um, a, a place and a family, right. That, mm-hmm. that yeah. Abram is commanded to, to leave behind. So that was a little Hebrew tidbit that I thought was kind of uh, interesting. And, uh, you know, that idea of a command from God to go that has, um, that has some uh, heavy stakes embedded yeah. in it, seem to have a little bit of resonance that I could see coming up in a sermon. I think so too, especially for this time of year. You know, we're, we're out of May, we're into June, so typically we're post-graduation commencement ceremonies. But, you know, for those folks who are in the pew who have, um, or who are young people of that age, that's going to be real heavy on their mind. Um, For a lot of people, once you graduate either high school or college or a master's program, you're leaving something behind and going somewhere else. You know, it could be as simple as the school that formed you for (laughs) four to eight to 12 years. Um, And it could be as, as high stakes as you're talking about, Tim, as your family, your, your family home. Um, So I, I think that that's a really I think that could be really powerful uh, in a sermon. <laughs> no, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I mean, I've been sort of, I was stuck on that mola death, like the place of your birth. Um, and that kind of struck me because yeah. it's also a verse that's, or, or a word that's used quite a bit in Esther where she's asked to hide where she's from, the mm. place where she was from, right? And so I was like, that's interesting that this would be here in the Hebrew as well, this like this sense of a place where you're born, a place where you maybe feel some safety. So it's it, like the idea of when you highlighted that you're leaving yourself, like there is in this verse a conception of self, mm-hmm. that it, it, it's related to place, related to birthplace, related to the people that, you know, that you were raised around. And there might be something there in, in terms of community and how people might be thinking about um, the place where they're from. We're at a time where people are moving and migrating yeah. at like unprecedented mm-hmm. rates, you know, mm-hmm. like so yeah. a global world in which we live. So even in that kind of, um, I found, I found that to be like an interesting just point for me to also think about is where, where do I belong? Mm-hmm. Where would I be going toward to? Because yeah. obviously in, in these verses, it's not clear where he's going. Well, and I think it's so helpful that you drew that out so clearly, Rosie, because it it escaped me, you know, in the NRSV, it's from your country, your kindred, your father's house. It kind of sounds like synonym, synonym, synonym. But when you really see it, the first one country is Eretz or Aretz, which mm-hmm. is like land, but can also be like very large chunk of land. And then the second one can be translated kindred, but as you were saying, it's really about a place. It's a place of your birth. So from your land, Mm -hmm. from your place of your birth. And then the third one 
is your father's house. So it really gets closer in specificity as the three move along and closer to the heart as well. Your Mm -hmm. land, the place of your birth, your father's house. You know, Mm -hmm. that's like, yeah, I mean, the stakes are high and the Hebrew spatially represents that as well. Mm -hmm. And those are, it's it's also progressively relational, right? Yeah. Because, um, you know, this term bet av, you know, your father's house is not a, not a building. Right. But a community, like household, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. the the extended family that you've been a part of. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that kind of caught my attention this time around as I was reading, um, I I don't know why I didn't really pick. I'm sure I've seen this before, but it it just hit me a little more strongly this time that um, they're not leaving from Ur of the Chaldeans; Mm. they're leaving Mm. from Haran. Mm-hmm. which is in Syria. So the generation oh. before oh. Terach, Abram's father, mm-hmm. already pulled up stakes huh. with his whole Beit Av, and they had uh, traveled with the intent to go to Canaan, hmm. but stopped along the way, like ha- at the halfway point in Syria. Interesting. In, in Haran, and uh, settled there. And that's kind of, hmm. there's like this pause and then the command comes to Abram, go, leave all this behind and go to the land that I'll show you. I don't know. There was something that was kind of interesting about that little detail in the story mm-hmm. that um, this is not necessarily a call to leave Ur. Abram and his family are already on a trek and they've settled yeah. for, for the moment. But then the call of God comes like while they're already on the road. So mm-hmm. there's like new instructions. On the road. And that got me thinking about how that could um, come into a sermon, about how how sometimes the call of God comes to us, um, not just all at once, but, you know, we get instructions, we begin to walk them out, but we have to continue to be open to um, course corrections, new, a new call Mm. along the way. And that's, that's kind of how it plays out here in the story of Abram. There's something so powerful, I think, as uh, just an immigrant story, too, because uh, yeah. wh- what you seem to be highlighting is that, uh, like, it was Abraham's father that had maybe received a call, too, and that yeah. maybe it had been interrupted for whatever reason. And now Abram's picking up where that left off. And each generation in, in the sort of immigrant story as well, like my mother came and my father came here to the United States, they met. And then now here we are. And now we're following the next step and who knows where we'll end up, you know, generationally, where will my daughter go? But like it, with each generation, right. We, we are, we are all in some way trying to respond faithfully to however we receive the call in this lifetime, but to also know that it doesn't all get accomplished in one life. Right. I mean, Mm. and certainly Abraham's story is one in which there are several generations before any of these promises that we're even talking about here in this chapter get realized or even hinted Mm -hmm. at. It just, it doesn't, it just doesn't manifest in, in one lifetime. It it reminds me a little bit of, um, I've been doing a a fair bit of learning from womanist theology and womanist biblical studies. Um, Folks, if you're not familiar, womanism is a, a branch of biblical studies or of theology that begins from the black woman's experience, um, typically black women of African descent in the United States, but it's expanded a bit as well. And now um, other folks in other countries are calling themselves womanist too, which I think is really beautiful. Um, But one of the emphases in womanism, as far as I understand it, is this emphasis upon the legacy that one is gifted from one's ancestors. 
Um, mm. And I could see a really beautiful connection here between um, this idea that that Abram is, is, you know, God shows up and says, Lech Lecha, and, and then Abram just goes. And it's always kind of struck me as odd that there's no conversation, no, you know, back and forth, no questioning. Abram, Abram just goes. But I wonder if part of that could be seen as um, Abram already almost had confirmation of God's mm. call from the ancestors or from, you know, his father who was on that path already. So this idea that God sends us a call and then our community affirms that call. And sometimes even it's the community of saints that have gone before us as well. Mm -hmm. The way that you're both hitting on the idea of a multi-generational call Mm. is another point that really stood out to me from from this reading, especially um, verses 4b through 9, which is the part that that don't get as much airtime, at least in Christian tradition. I, I think I remember that that these verses actually are pretty significant in Jewish tradition mm. because of the emphasis on Abraham uh, walking out the land itself and that mm. connection between uh, Jewish heritage and the land. Mm. And we get this sort of um, the beginning of like a travelogue, mm. right? Of, mm-hmm. of Abram's uh, travels and stages. First, there's a stop at, at Shechem, uh, Shechem yeah. uh, where the Lord appears to him like mm-hmm. some sort of vision of God and promising um, not to give this land to Abram, but to give the land to mm. Abram's descendants. Yeah. And Abram responds by building an altar. So there's um, worship that happens in that space in response to this promise. But then he picks up and continues moving on and stops by Bethel builds another altar and worships there as well. And then we get this note that he just went stage by stage from north to south down towards the Negev. And they end up in Egypt, and then there's a whole sort of thing that happens there (laughs) beyond the lectionary reading. Um, But yeah, that's what's going on with this travelogue. I mean, I, I when I originally read this for prepping for this episode, my post-colonial lens went on mm. and it was, you know, just as you say, walking the land, but also marking off boundaries, marking off mm. this land, you know, and claiming that land through these like, um, so it, it felt, um, it felt actually kind of aggressive. Like I was like, oh, there's land that, that other people have lived on. And now, uh, you know, through these words are, are it's almost a, a threat because you will see these, these, this gets carried out and these boundary markers are the very ones, you know, that are the claim, uh, in, in Joshua that will continue on mm-hmm, for the conquest. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, that was how I saw that is a very deliberate staking out mm-hmm. of this land. Right, because these are contested exactly. lands. Boundaries. Mm-hmm. There are people that occupy these places, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that, that's that's really interesting that you that you uh, read that through that postcolonial lens, Rosie. I I, um, I read it a little bit differently, mm-hmm. and I think both of these readings uh, are, are important and can you know help us make meaning of this. Um, the the part that stood out to me was that as Abram travels, he never has a permanent home. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I sort of got lost for a little while, just sort of continuing on in the story to try to figure out where it is that he eventually, you know, settles as his permanent home. And he never has one. Mm-hmm. He just keeps moving from place to place to place to place until he dies. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, so there's all these sort of spots that are associated with Abram, whether it's uh, Shechem or, or Bethel or Beersheba. There's, uh, you know, Mamre and Hebron mm-hmm. and um, uh, even a, a little episode by Jerusalem. There, there's sort of all these places where he stops for a little while, but it keeps keeps moving. And so coming back to Genesis 12, to the beginning of Genesis 12, he's called to go to this land, but he never has a place of his own, um, like a permanent home mm-hmm. of his own, and, and lives out his life as a nomad, which is, which is kind of interesting. The, the land is promised to his descendants, but it's not for him mm-hmm. personally. <laughs> so really, Abram's whole call was about his legacy not about his own personal fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was, I, I don't know, I started spinning that out into a preaching angle about how sometimes what God calls us to is not like in the first place for us, mm-hmm. but it's for those who, who come after later generations. And um, I think that's a meaningful word that could speak into uh, you know, our individual lives, but also to churches, right? Yeah. Churches that are working to discern what God's call is for them. I think churches need to be thinking about the long game. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just like, what's God doing for us now, but what's God calling us to for the generations that are coming after us? Like maybe our own experience of of the church is unsettled and, and we're mm-hmm. working out a calling that's for the benefit of those who are going to come later. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, it's interesting to sit here and listen to both of those those experiences of this text kind of placed side by side, because I, I think in some ways, Rosie, what you're saying about this, this establishment of boundaries, this, you know, claim aggressive claiming of land that is not yours, that is other people's as well, could be actually a really great um cautionary tale for hmm. churches as they're looking at their legacy and as they're looking at the long-term game. What what is the impact of the people around us on the land on which we live of generations who came before as we think about what God is is calling us to in this space? It's interesting because I mean, I've been listening to some churches and their conversations around reparations here in the yeah. South too. And so there's a mm-hmm. real intersection there. You're right in the tension between those two readings, right? Which mm-hmm. are living in the in-between, uh, having this space and having stewardship and responsibility for this legacy, but also mm-hmm. recognizing that you are on contested land for that, right? So, I mean, just these complex histories that we we live into. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the thing that this also made me think about is the the intersection with the, um, the second reading from the epistle, right? So mm. um, that section from Romans four is talking about Abraham as this a pioneer of faith, right? Mm. And this, so, I mean, even in terms of the way that our different denominations, and I'm thinking of Lutherans too, hold faith, yeah. um, you know, as this kind of, um, what is it that Abraham is holding faith with? Like, and Tim was kind of touching on this is like, yeah. he's never, he's not going to have a home. Uh, he's not going to have those stakes on the land. He's going to live as a nomad and it's going to take a very long time for this land to, to ever, you know, be the land of Israel. Right? Yeah. So, um, so there's, what is Paul touching at too? Like in terms of, you know, his, his um, praising of, 
Abraham's hoping against hope, you mm. know, like this expectation that he is also like an old man at this mm. point. I mean, the text is right. telling us he's 75. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, I mean, in some ways kind of goes back to what you were saying too, Rosie, about how, about reading this text through an immigrant's eyes. Like what, at what age does it become so difficult to, to change completely, you know, or at what age does one do that anyway, because one is thinking of the next generation. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a really interesting lens. The nice thing is that it seems to be saying there, there is no like age limit to this call, right? (laughs) You may think that the call comes at 20, the call comes at 30 or, you know, these kind of like very energetic years, but here, you know, I'm also thinking of myself, I'm at the latter side of this, right? And I'm like, I could get a call at like 60, 70, yeah. 80. I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, right. Maybe we don't settle as Christians, right? Maybe we, we mm-hmm. don't just get one call in this life. Maybe we just keep getting called. Well, and I just, I just loved the way, Tim, you used this phrase of, um, I think, I think it was multi-generational calls. Mm-hmm. And like for me at this moment, oh, I'm getting kind of choked up. Um, at this moment, that's really pertinent because my dad um, in uh, a little over a week is going to retire after 39 years of called and ordained ministry um, and a couple more of, of church work before that. So, and, and as a Lutheran pastor myself, like I, um, who is also a teacher, which was my mom's calling for um, just as long. It, it really has always felt like an honor to, to kind of bear the multi-generational call, but I'd never had a, a term for it or a word for it or a phrase for it. Yeah. And you know, as we, as we think about it, um, the last few churches that have been a part of our old churches, um, mm. not just sort of demographically, although that too, but, <laughs> mm. um, like they've been, or the church has been around for a hundred years or 120 yeah. years or something. And you know, Maybe God has a new call for an mm-hmm. old church, yeah, just like right. God had a call for the elderly Abram. Like, um, yeah, thinking about who who are we as a as a church community that may have been around for a long time, mm-hmm. um, but God may be calling us into something fresh. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. I I think we've got some some yeah. good tips, some good fodder uh, out of. Um, Genesis 12. And uh, that's it. No other text for us to look at, right? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, like, we have been going for like 25 minutes. So if you want to, or if Rosie, if you had anything else, or if y'all want to cut here, I don't have to do my Hosea stuff. I want to hear well, some I'd, Hosea I'd love stuff. to hear a little bit okay. of what you got. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, happy accident. I uh, went with Hosea instead of Genesis um, because Lutherans are the the strange ones. I don't even know if we're <laughs> the only ones who do this, but we're one of the only ones perhaps who go with the alternate reading as our main reading. So that's just like my, what I'm geared towards after being in the parish for, for five years. Uh, <laughs> but, but one of the things that drew me into Hosea is number one, I, I really like this book. I know it's hard. I know it's traumatic. I know it's troublesome, but like, dang, like it's just, I cannot get away from this book. Like there are, are as many gifts as there are problems in the book of Hosea. And sometimes I think it's the tension between the two, which is so real to real life that Mm. just continues to draw me over and over again. Um, 
that's not actually why I I got drawn into Hosea this time, though. I got drawn into Hosea because of the Matthew text. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Matthew text for the gospel reading assigned for this Sunday is that kind of famous text where Jesus is challenged by members of the Pharisee group as to why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And in response, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. It's three sentences that have a whole ton of stuff packed into there, including this reference to Hosea 6, 6. Um, so let me just unpack a little bit of what Jesus does there, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why it, it kind of drew me. Um, first of all, he places the discussion of sin within the context of sickness. And this is something that we as moderns really try hard not to do. We, we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time undoing our bad behavior of assuming that if someone is physically or mentally different than other people or than sort of typical bodies, neurotypical bodies, you know, physical typical bodies, that there's something wrong with them, that that's bad. We've had to spend a lot of time undoing that baggage. Um, so the fact that Jesus does it here of placing sin in the context of sickness and really does it over and over again in the Gospels can make us feel really like, oof, all right, uh, mm. not really sure what to do with that, Jesus. In verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The Pharisees ask about sinners. Jesus shifts the discussion to focus on those who are sick. And actually, the rest of the pericope then follows Jesus's shift almost immediately after this discussion with the Pharisees, there are two people we meet who are sick or dead, uh, the daughter of the leader of the synagogue and a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And I'll just take a little point of privilege here. The NRSV tries to pretty this up by saying the woman had suffered from hemorrhages. There's nothing, there's no word suffered in there and hemorrhages is not really in there either. And it's definitely not in noun form. It's a verb. The Greek is blunt. She has been bleeding for 12 years. I won't go on my body rant here, but I'll go back to the original point. (laughs) Now, both woman and daughter are healed by Jesus. So that's the first thing to really take note of in this pericope. Jesus is trying to make a connection between sinfulness and sickness, and the rest of the story even pans out that way as well. Now, in the midst of framing sinfulness as sickness, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6.6. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus tells someone to go and learn what this means, I feel mm-hmm. like those are all in capital letters and we should all just kind of like, it's almost like the, the modern version of having a period after each word, go and learn what this means. <laughs> so for preachers, you know, you might want to go and learn what this means. <laughs> um, That's good advice. Right. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> And maybe, you know, and I think Hosea actually kind of helps us a little bit to, to understand the ways that Jesus is connecting sickness and sinfulness. So broadly, Hosea 5, 15 through 6, 6 is smack in the middle of a book about God not being at all happy with the people of Israel. And that's like putting it mildly, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So just a reminder, this is a prophetic book, which does not mean it predicts the future, but it does mean that it serves as a direct word from God to God's people. Uh, most of us would date this book to the 8th century BCE, which means about seven to 800 years before Jesus's time. It was a time when the great empire of Assyria was threatening to devour the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And the book of Hosea is basically a message telling God's people why this bad stuff is happening and perhaps a little bit about how to avoid it in the future. And what Hosea basically says is, y'all, this is happening because you brought this on your own head. And Hosea, the author, uses a lot of imagery to make this point. And it is graphic. It is troublesome. It describes God's people in really difficult ways. In part, it's trying to draw the hearer's attention to how bad the people's past actions have been, worshiping other deities, completely neglecting God, forgetting to pass the faith to the future generations. And then you just get these these long lists of verbs, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed upon bloodshed, says the prophet in Hosea Mm. 4, 2. So the picture you get from the first few chapters is not of a people that are sick per se, but of a people instead that are willfully, gleefully, uninhibitedly throwing themselves into patterns of behavior that hurt themselves, hurt others, And even, here's where it gets interesting, hurt the land itself. Hosea 4 verse 3 says, Therefore the land mourns and all who live in it languish. So interesting to kind of think about our whole conversations about Genesis that just Mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. Together with the wild animals, the birds of the air. And then it says, even the fish of the sea are perishing. Hmm. And it's, I mean, it's hard to read that through today's lens and not Mm -hmm. go immediately to climate change, to the the terrible effects of our behavior on uh, the environment, on the land, the wild animals, the the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the recent stories about whales dying um, Hmm. as well. It's definitely about the human impact on the environment, but it also brings to light just this general impact of what our sin does to ourselves and to other people. And that's, I think, where it starts to get make a little bit of sense to have this conversation in the context of sickness. Sickness isn't necessarily something that we do to bring upon ourselves, but when we have it, it affects other people, um, you know. You can't come through COVID times and have someone in your family who quarantined, you know, both Tim and I, my husband and I caught COVID at really inconvenient times for the family. And so Mm. for the family, it was really tough to try to navigate this person's sickness as we were trying to, you know, kind of figure out how to do the rest of life as well. Mm. So, you know, I think sinfulness is both an individual concept and a communal one. Mm. But sometimes that gets glossed over. We think of sinfulness today as like, you know, between me and God, and sometimes between me and other people, but really between me and God. And and what sickness draws us into is the fact that no, sinfulness affects us, it affects other people, it can even have an impact on the environment around us. And in the context of that discussion, Jesus asks us to choose mercy. And I think that's where we really start to tip towards an interesting concept is that sickness doesn't really seem like it would require mercy, not in the same way as sinfulness. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wonder if the urge is similar there, the urge to help others, the urge to heal, the urge to um, choose the good, even if someone has wronged you or has hurt you or you have hurt yourself, perhaps. Um, that we don't often think about that in the terms of sickness, but I just wonder what it might do, what a sermon might do that draws us into the concept of healing as a response to sinfulness or as of mercy as well. I like the way that you're kind of playing with the imagery. Part of what's problematic about, about all of that is the 
is is taking the connection between sin and sickness as some sort of like literal connection. Mm. Mm-hmm. But when you're seeing sickness as a kind of metaphor for what sinfulness does mm-hmm. and how it affects us and affects others and affects our environment, mm-hmm. like sickness can, mm-hmm. then that's actually really powerful. And then healing becomes evocative metaphorical language as well, right? For me, like as I was listening to you, I was like, I, I also felt that there was something really rich in what you were drawing out, but also I was scared because that's it's a tough that would be a tough um, sermon uh, yeah. to do in a short amount of time. Uh, but with a congregation that really trusted you to, I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a metaphor to open up mm-hmm. there. And to me, as I was like, is there a different language that we could use rather than mm. sickness? Is it like, is it a sense of unhealth or yeah. illness, you know, like, or something where it's like, we all know what it feels like to be, uh, to not be at our best, yeah. you know? And, and I think we can all recognize that, when we do things that disappoint, when we hurt others, we are not at our best. Yeah. Um, we hurt, you know, like, so I don't know how to do this, but like I, the metaphor is rich, mm-hmm. but it is also really um, richly problematic right? <laughs> in all the ways that Hosea right. is. Right. So right. when you choose to preach to these well, texts, yeah. And, and Matthew, right? Like oh, Matthew's, Matthew's got, got some, some, some pro- like there's some problematic stuff in Matthew as well. But I think that the other connection that felt evocative to me is how we can be stuck in sin and not want to do it anymore, but sort of like be so deep in that groove, in that habit. Um, You know, I think of addiction, but even down from addiction, just the bad behavior, like you were talking about, Rosie, that hurts other people that we almost, you know, can't help ourselves doing because we've done it so many times. And to see that not in the context of guilt, but in the context of something that requires healing, you know, that's maybe Mm -hmm. where, where Mm -hmm. one could go in this, that would, that would keep one on a very thin line, <laughs> um, little tightrope there. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, we've we've all experienced this with the Bible. I mean, this is not tame stuff, right? Yeah. This is if it's gonna have a powerful impact in our lives, it's because it's volatile material, right? And so it has uh, great potential for problematic, troublesome, difficult stuff, but also a lot of potential for life transforming, you know, power. So, yeah. so if it was all, you know, just easy fluff stuff, you know, why would we be talking about it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we wrap up? I think, I think we've got good stuff here. Let's yeah. See. I think. Well, folks, we hope you found something helpful in our discussion today. Remember, you can find an episode on just about every passage in the lectionary by using the search box on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. While you're there, take a peek at our merch or make a donation to help keep the podcast going. And hey, a big thank you to everyone who has donated so far. We're grateful. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found us helpful, hey, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you find us. The best way to spread the word is to share your favorite episodes with the Bible lovers in your life. First Reading is produced by Rosie Candlethal, Tim McNinch, Rachel Wren, and Paul Essa. Thanks all for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candlethal. And I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week, everyone.